0: Turn with me to the 19th chapter of 1 Kings and let me read a lot of verses to you. And I want you this morning to concentrate with me. I want you to work with me this morning. This is not like preaching one verse of the Bible, which I did last week. This is a lot of content and there's going to be a lot of things that I don't say that I would love for the Lord to show you, even though I haven't said them. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Elijah had just eliminated 450 prophets of Baal. He hadn't done it. God had done it. God had come down with a miraculous uh, burning of a sacrifice and showed uh, his power. And how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more. If I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now to show you what a wonderful thing adrenaline is, Beersheba is a hundred miles away from where he was. He ran for a hundred miles but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. and said, "It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I'm not better than my father's." And he lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, "Arise, eat." And then he looked, and behold, there was a cake at his head, a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. This is another 130 miles he is traveling. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord. The God of hosts, the sons of Israel, have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thine altars, and killed thy prophets with a sword. And I alone am left. They seek my life to take it away. So God said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Behold, the Lord was passing by, and the great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. The wind was so strong that it was cracking rocks. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. And it came about that when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle. It would have been a sheepskin. And he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, So, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant and torn down thine altars and killed thy prophets with a sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived, you shall anoint Haziel, skipping down, and Jehu, skipping down, and Elisha, skipping down. And it shall come about, the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel, Jehu, shall put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. One of the ways that you can tell if you're successful is not by the elimination of your problems. We have this assumption in our head that the gauge of our success is the elimination of our problems. No. Here's the real formula. You can tell if you are successful if you get new problems. Because if you are not successful, if you are a failure, you will have the old problems that continue to come back to you. Right? Let me give you an example. If you have a child at three years old who throws a temper tantrum. If you do not address successfully that temper tantrum, you will see it again when he is six, eight, ten, sixteen, twenty-five, forty, fifty. As long as he lives, that problem will come back to you. The same problem if you do successfully address that temper tantrum problem, you will get new problems. One of the things that Elijah was learning was that the defeat of the prophet of Baal, prophets of Baal, was not the end of his problems. He just was getting a new set of problems. Now he would face the spirit behind the prophets of Baal. One of the ways that you know that you've been successful is that you not only get new problems, you get new problems you can't handle by yourself. And you need other people. Let me give you an example. Per se, the one we saw today. Six years ago, when I came here, we said, we have no real youth program. We've got nothing for the kids. We've got a handful of teenagers, and we've got nothing to really raise them up in the Lord. Well, this was a problem for me, too, because I'm not called to youth ministry. And since our kids have been small, I have said, Lord, when our kids get to be teenagers, please let us be a part of a church that has an unbelievable youth ministry. They need to be on fire for the Lord. Well, we prayed for Vernon Rainwater, and God granted us Vernon Rainwater. Now we have a very successful resolution to that initial problem. We have um hundreds of kids. And we have hundreds of events. We ha- we go all the way from evangelistic events uh that that where you can get 500 kids or 600 kids or 700 kids to come out and listen to a gorilla band and see a huge gorilla you know, and have the gospel implicit in that. All the way from strictly teaching content center times, dialogue times, question times, uh, small fellowship groups. And at the other end of the spectrum, we have a group of kids that meet weekly called a doulos group. Doulos is Greek for servant or slave, the slave of Christ. 25, 35 kids in that group. Who every week are accountable to one another for their growth in Christ. Every week they read, every day they read Scripture. Every day they journal. They give a certain number of community hours just as a gift for Christ, on behalf of Christ. They meet with each other weekly to say, These are my struggles, these are my temptations. Pray for me that I can grow in Christ. In other words, we've got a group of teenagers that are ahead of 80% of the adults in this congregation. We have solved our youth problem, but we have created another problem. Oh, it's not as important as the youth problem. It's just bigger than the youth problem. It's a building problem. You understand? And where a couple hundred of us could pay for the salary of Vernon Rainwater, a couple hundred of us can't build this building. So, therefore, we come to a place where the solution to one problem brings about greater, new, wonderful problems. Not the same problems over and over again. And, therefore, we need each other. Now, let me go on from here and get back to the text. Well, I never left the text, actually. Elijah had just faced the prophets of Baal, had a victory, and here comes the spirit of Jezebel, which is the spirit of Satan wanting to kill him. When Jesus saw this spirit in the uh, Pharisees, they said, We are sons of Abraham. He said in John 8, You're not sons of Abraham. You're sons of your father the devil because he's a murderer. And I know who's coming after me. It's Satan coming after me. And this came out of a woman. Now you say, why would a man who had just defeated 450 men be afraid of a woman? You know, if you're married, why that is. No. No. He was, I'm going to pay for that. (laughs) He was caught off guard. Just as Luke uh, 22, uh, 31, where Jesus turned to Peter and said, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. And in verse 57, there's a servant girl who comes up and says, weren't you with him? And Peter panics, the strongest of all the disciples panics, the strongest of the prophets panics. And he takes off, and Satan drives him into isolation by intimidation, that's exactly where Satan wants him And Let me tell you why. There's two reasons why Satan wants us isolated in our defeat and in our embarrassment. First reason is so that we might kill ourselves. Always, self-destruction is the first inclination that we have. I wish I didn't exist. I wish I didn't live. Take me, for I am no better than my father. when we run into the fact that we have limitations, that we are mortal, that we have failed, we say, Lord, take me, because I'm no better than my fathers. Now, if you can hang on through that phase, wanting just to sign out so that the world will not be burdened with you any longer, if you can hang on through that phase, and please do, because remember, whenever your thoughts turn toward self-destruction, Or self elimination. I want you to know that's coming from the other side. God would never tell you that. You know that. God would never tell God says, choose life. He's the God of life. So therefore, whenever those thoughts come, if you can hang on long enough, then you get to the second phase, and here comes Satan's second volley. Well, if you can't eliminate yourself, at least eliminate those who have hurt you. Okay? I want you to go, and I want you to hide in a cave somewhere, and I want you to start blaming, and I want you to start pointing uh, the finger of irresponsibility. It's his fault. You should have been there for me. You weren't there for me. And therefore, I want you to recognize others as people who hurt you. And I want you to sign your life off from them so that they can't hurt you anymore. Now, that sounds perfectly logical, doesn't it? But the the other half of the sentence that Satan never tells you is that if you are signing your life away from people, you are not only signing your life away from the cause of your hurt, you are signing your life away from the cure of your hurt. Because people's love is important to us in addition to God's love. That's why he put us here. That's why he didn't. He didn't just create more and more angels. It's important for us to know the love of other people. When I was in uh, a, a chaplain for a mental institution for a year while I was working my doctoral program, um, I've told some of you this story. I was walking across campus one time at the first of the year uh, that I was serving as chaplain, and I was pretty scared, anyhow. It's it's frightening because you you all of these. Alfred Hitchcock movies are are floating around in the back of your head. You know, you're in a mental institution, an insane asylum, you know. And it was an old building that looked like an insane asylum. You could just, you know. And out from the bushes, this woman sprang. She looked at me and she said, I know what you've been saying about me. You're just like all the others. You want to hurt me. I won't let you hurt me. I'll kill you. And I went... (laughs) Very professional. Very professional. Then she ran away. See? Then I ran away. (laughs) What was her story? Her story was this. That she had successfully isolated herself. And she had supposed that... The people who hurt her were everybody, and she had generalized that cause of hurt so much that she had become entrapped within herself. She could no longer reach out, and so she was afraid ever to make response, or ever to make relationships. And because she could not make relationships, she was trapped in that institution. She was jailed within herself. You see, that's when Satan has you. If you'll just keep to yourself so that you can be safe, you will always keep to yourself so that you will never love. That's why Satan wants to put all of the responsibility of the world on our shoulders. So that we can't possibly cope. And so that all of those other people who were supposed to take on that responsibility will turn into the bad guys and we can just get an attitude. We can just blame away and feel self-righteous in our cave. Now here's the trick on Satan. God always has a last word, doesn't he? Guess where God wants to get you? Same place Satan wants to get you. Alone. You see, we run from Satan... And if we can hang in there long enough without jumping to the conclusions that we'll stick to, pretty soon the voice of God comes to us and starts asking us questions. Isn't it awful how God just starts asking us questions? Why can't He just come yell at us? You know? We want to yell at Him, and we do. He doesn't. He just comes asks us a question. He came He came to Adam when Adam had really blown it big time in the garden and Adam's hiding behind a bush stark naked, realizes it for the first time here comes God by the way, I believe that that's why men to this day have these dreams about showing up for work without their pants on I think it goes clear back to the garden I really do there's Adam shows up for work and discovers he doesn't have his pants on I think it's something in there but anyhow So there's God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and he says, Hey, Adam, where are you? Again, not a question of geography. God knew very well where Adam was. question of biography. A question he wanted Adam to ask himself. Where am I? I mean, I'm behind a bush. I'm ashamed. I've blown it. The answer that he wanted Adam to come up with is, I need you. I'm at a place where I need you. Now, Adam didn't come up with that answer. Look at where God had Elijah. I mean, here he was in this cave. He was—he lodged there. You, you know, the word means stuck. He was stuck in this cave. And God comes and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And this first response is just to take off on God big time. I'll tell you what I'm doing here. I'll tell you. I'll tell you right now. I've been the only one who have been jealous for you. All the other guys, just... And now they're trying to kill me. That's what I'm doing here. So God goes out and just starts doing miracles. Just starts giving great big signs. <laughs> and Elijah's in there going... And then he speaks softly in a still, small voice. And Elijah comes out. God says... So, what are you doing here? Well, uh, I, I, I was uh, the only one that uh, was for you here. And he starts to realize the very thing that God wants him to realize, and that's this. You can't do it alone. I'm here because I am overwhelmed. I can't do it alone. I have been successful. And what you have given me to do, and now I have a problem that I can't handle alone. I need other people. I remember the first time Becky was pregnant, and and uh, well, she was negotiating everything, and 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 her pregnancy was was quite a problem, you know. Um, and then she successfully delivered our firstborn Joshua, and Joshua had his had his. Uh, nursery room right next to our room and about two weeks after um, Josh was born Beck was in bed and she was asleep and she was having this horrible nightmare tossing and her no no and I woke her up and said honey what are you dreaming what's going on she goes oh Hunter oh my gosh it was awful she said I dreamed that I walked in to Josh's room and he was hanging over the crib he was seven eight feet tall Just wanting me to care for all of his needs. And I was too small to do it. See? It's exactly where God wants us. You can't possibly fix me. You're too small. That's what God wants us to discover. You can't do it alone. You need me. Now... course, our first inclination is to hope that there's something in all those miracles that God likes to do that will relieve us of our responsibility. See? That's that's my my first prayer is always for a miracle. I mean, I just, you know, it never hurts to ask, does it? (laughs) Doesn't hurt to ask. I've always had that philosophy. I'm serious about that. I always just want to say, Lord, you know, give me a miracle. And that, and there is something about that that we, you know, we really kind of, uh, you know, when when people are in financial need, what do they say? I, I saw a T-shirt the other day that says, "God tests me. I swear, if I win the, win the lottery, I won't get spoiled." You know. <laughs> we just, you know, some sort of miracle, something to relieve, you know, but the Bible says, in this case, as in 90% of the cases, that God did all those spectacular things. But that wasn't what he was about. That wasn't what he was doing in Elijah's life. He wasn't going to miraculously rescue Elijah from his situation. He put him there for a reason. So what did God do? He whispered. He whispered. What did he want to teach Elijah? To listen. Just to listen. Do you know that there is more power in the voice of God than every mighty miracle that has ever happened on the face of this earth. Do you know that more powerful than the defeat of Pharaoh's army chasing the Israelites, more powerful than the conquest of Canaan, more powerful than the fall of Goliath was the whimper of a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. The voice of God is more powerful than any miracle of God. And God wants to teach us to listen. That's where you get the wisdom to know the difference, by the way. By listening. There is no substitute for listening. And He will not, with great regularity, perform miracles in your life because there is something more valuable for you to learn to do, mature Christians, and that is to recognize His voice. You know, people have asked me in the last little while how I get accomplished all I have to do. Now, I am no more busy than all of you are. I know that all of us are the same busy. And I have no illusions about me working harder than anybody else. But my response is always the same. I could not possibly get done all I have to do if I did not spend hours every day in prayer. I listen. I spend at least one hour. Sometimes three hours four hours listening because only then can I tell what I am to do and what I am not to do understand that's what God wants to teach you and if you listen you will get a reply along the model of the reply that Elijah got he said God said Elijah go forth on your way Now, in Hebrew, this is return to your way. In other words, return to the way that I have given you. There is no escape. I've got you set on a course here. I didn't make a mistake. You're set on a course. You're right where you ought to be. You return to that path. All right? Just like I was talking about last week in Acts 5, the escape of a Christian is always right back into the fire. However... God said. This is your responsibility. It is your responsibility to reply to Jezebel. But it is not your job. Let me tell you the difference here. And I want you to listen very, very carefully. We always have more responsibility than we have work. We always have more things to be concerned about than we have to do. That's how we get linked up. If we were only concerned about that which we had to do, we could operate alone, right? But God gives us areas of responsibility that are much broader than our calling. Returning to the skit, you know, all of those things were partially Vernon's responsibility. He's a head of worship. So therefore, if there was something wrong with the sound system, if there was something wrong with the piano, if there was something wrong with the lights, if there was something wrong, and furthermore, he's a Christian, why wouldn't he be concerned about things such as, uh, what came up here, hostages in the Middle East? You know, the I mean, that's his concern as a Christian, isn't it? What about the theology, the mystery of the Trinity? Shouldn't that be his concern? Should Vernon do any of them? Uh huh. No. Here's the second part of this. God says to us when we are overburdened and we can't possibly do it all ourselves. He says, first of all, return. Don't don't check out. And second of all, anoint anoint now in hebrew the verb tense is indefinite it doesn't say when you're going to find these people to anoint it doesn't say it just says go looking for these people whom i have chosen to address those situations you see elijah was a prophet he wasn't a general he wasn't a king he was a prophet Therefore, when it came to fighting the armies of Jezebel, that wasn't his job. But it was Hazel's job, and it was Jehu's job. And Elisha could speak with the sword of the word of his mouth. You see, it was their job. And so what what the Bible tells us, and what God is saying to you, is that be concerned about those, but find the people that you can empower that are gifted and called to do those things. That's how we learn to depend on one another. That's how we figure that we don't have to do it all of ourselves. Now, there will be people who come to you, and they will say, according to your gift, how much responsibility are you willing to take? And then you take the responsibility according to your calling, according to what God tells you. That's where the listening comes in. See? See? But it's very, very important for you to begin to look to other people to see how they're gifted. Because you know what? Unless you see how they're gifted, unless God is pointing out to you people who he may have chosen for these things, they may never know it themselves. Unless they hear it from you, you know? I think you're gifted in this area. Could you help me out in this area? I have a concern. Really? Yeah, I'd love to do that. See? That's how he hooks us together. Now, no big ending. I'm going to end with prayer. Stand. Lord God, this is a very simple message, but a very complicated process. It is a very immediate answer, but a very prolonged quest. And therefore, we want to tell you what you want to hear. We recognize we cannot do it alone. We recognize that the people who have been around us may not be the ones who can do it either. But we also recognize that in your plan, there are people out there that can help us with that which you have laid on our heart. Would you help us to do two things? Would you help us to learn to listen to you daily so that we may know what to do and what not to do? Would you also help us in that listening To recognize the people that you are putting in our path. Our Hazel, our Jehu, our Elisha. And all of those that you give to surround us. So that your kingdom might be built. Both through our work and through the work of our brothers and sisters. We love you God. And we ask you to help us realize we are family. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace.